The following sermon, entitled God's Great Love for the World, was preached on the evening of February 27, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this evening to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We will read the first 21 verses and the text for this evening's sermon is verse 16. John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto Him, Rabbi, we know that Thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou, art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he that hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God." We end our Scripture reading at that point. The text for this evening's sermon is verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It would be difficult 
to overstate the importance of this passage of Scripture that we consider tonight. John 3, verse 16. Because this is arguably the most well-known passage in all of sacred Scripture. And because it's so well-known, it behooves us that we have a clear understanding of what it means. What makes it all the more important is that this is also probably the most misunderstood and misapplied passages in all of sacred Scripture. The most prevalent view is that this passage teaches that God loves every single person head for head the world over, and therefore God sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for all men. As reformed believers, we reject that interpretation. But could you explain why that's wrong? Could you defend the proper understanding of this passage over against the misunderstandings and the misapplications? We know that we reject that other view, but do we know why we reject that view? It's important that we have a clear understanding of this passage. But that's also important because of the beautiful truths that are set forth here in this passage. This is indeed one of the most beautiful passages in all of sacred Scripture. For it contains the great promise of the Gospel distilled down to a few words and encapsulated in a single verse. We must never imagine that John 3.16 is somehow a bad text. Because the reality is, it's one of the most important and one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. And so it's important that we consider this passage. But now if we're ever going to understand it, we need to interpret it in light of its context. And in the immediate context, Jesus Christ is giving instruction to Nicodemus concerning the source of our salvation. He's talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. One who would have been brought up in the schools of self-righteousness. And he himself would have been entirely convinced of that viewpoint so that for Nicodemus, salvation finds its source in man. Over against that view, Jesus Christ carefully instructs him to show him that salvation comes from our God. It comes from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. That is, you must be regenerated. And obviously, being born again is not something we can do ourselves, it's not even something we can contribute to. Which is to say, salvation has its source in God. Now, having explained that truth, Jesus Christ backs up a step further regarding the source of our salvation and points Nicodemus to the ultimate source, namely God's love. Every aspect of our salvation flows out of the love of our God, our regeneration, our calling, our faith, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. It can all be traced back to God's love exactly because 
It was in His love that God gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This passage is about God's love and the greatness of it. So this evening we consider John 3, verse 16 using as our theme God's great love for the world. First, we look at the greatness of God's love. Second, at the object of God's love. And then third, the purpose of God's love. The greatness, the object, and the purpose. This passage declares to us the love of our God. Jesus says here, for God so loved. And that God loves us means that He desires and seeks after us. That He binds Himself to us and us to Him. And that He accomplishes our greatest good. That's God's love. First, that God loves us means He desires us. He seeks after us. And we say that in light of one of two Old Testament Hebrew words for love. One of which means literally to breathe after. It expresses the desire of love. So that even as a husband longs for his wife, so God yearns for His people. And in His love, therefore, God has chosen us. That's a part of His love. For example, Deuteronomy 10, verse 15, the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. What does that love look like? And He chose their seed after them. In desiring us as people, He chooses us to be His own. He makes us His covenant people. He delights in having us near to Him. And thus, He brings us into His own fellowship so that God's love is first of all His desire for us, is seeking after us. But then, that love goes a step further in that God then binds us to Himself. That's the second aspect of God's love. And we say that in light of the other Old Testament Hebrew word for love, which means literally to fasten together, to join together. Just as a husband enters into a marriage, so God makes us His people. He establishes an unbreakable bond with us, His people. And this necessarily involves and includes God drawing us to Himself. That too is a part of His love. For example, Jeremiah 31, verse 3 reads, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. God powerfully and irresistibly draws us to Himself and establishes an unbreakable and everlasting union so that we are His people. But then, having desired us and sought after us, having bound us to Himself, third, our God accomplishes our greatest good. That's His love. Just as a husband wants what's best for his wife, and seeks to accomplish that. So God wants what's best for us, His people. Now here the difference is that whereas a husband may desire to do his wife good, it may well be he lacks the ability to do it. Not so with God. God not only desires our greatest good, but He sovereignly and efficaciously performs it. He accomplishes it. Which is to say, our God in His love blesses us. That's Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, where we read regarding Balaam's attempt to curse Israel. 
the Lord thy God turn the curse into a blessing unto thee because the Lord thy God loved thee. And His love for us, He blesses us. He works all things for our greatest good, namely our salvation. That very briefly is God's love. His desire for us, His binding of us to Himself, and His work to accomplish our greatest good. But what this passage is really about is not just God's love from a general point of view, but the greatness of God's love. It's in John 3.16 that we read, God so loved the world. And that little word, so, is emphasizing the, the magnitude, the greatness of God's love. Tonight we need to ask, what is it that makes God's love so great? Well, from a general point of view, there are three reasons. First, God's love is a truly great love because it has its source in Himself. For example, in 1 John 4, verse 8, we read that God is love. And that's quite something because the passage does not merely say that God loves, using a verb, nor does the passage say that God is loving, using an adjective. But it says God is love. It it uses a noun. It's predicating love to our God. And what this is teaching us is that love is one of God's attributes. This is a part of who He is as with regard to His being and His essence. God is love. And that means His love for us has its source in Himself. And that makes His love a great love because it, it sets His love apart from our love for one another. Because the reality is that our love is usually based on something else that we see in someone. Our love is based on attraction. We see something lovable in somebody else and then we set our love upon them accordingly. Well, not so with our God. There was nothing lovable There was nothing attractive in us that somehow drew God's love out of Him. God loves us because He is love. And He willed to set His love upon us. His love has its source in Himself as God. That makes His love great. Second, what makes His love great is that it's a love for perishing sinners. Romans 5, verse 8 tells us, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As those who are fallen in Adam, as those who have sinned against our God, we stand opposed to Him as rebels. And as such, we deserve to perish. We deserve to suffer the agonies and torments of hell to be forever lost and destroyed. That's what we deserve on account of our sin. That only emphasizes God's love. and that he It's a love for such sinners who deserve to perish. And you recognize this is going a step beyond what we just said. For it's one thing to say that there's nothing lovable or attractive in us that would draw God's love out of Him. But it goes a step further to say that God has set His love upon those who were altogether 
unattractive and unlovable from a spiritual point of view. He set His love on ugly, defiled, depraved sinners. And that makes it a great love. A glorious love. But His love is great not only because it has its source in Himself, not only because it's a love for sinners who deserve to perish, it's a great love because it's a giving love. And Scripture everywhere emphasizes the connection between love and giving. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, we read that husbands are to love their wives even as Christ so loved the church and gave Himself for it. And what that's teaching us as husbands is that love is not a mere emotion. It's not just saying some nice words. But love involves giving. Giving of ourselves. Giving of our time and energy. Making sacrifices. Well, God's love is a great love because it is such a giving love. That's the text God so loved that He gave. And He gives whatever it takes in order to bring about that greatest good that He is determined for His people. That makes God's love a great love. But now all of that is still from a very general point of view. And we still have yet to zero in on the main thing in this passage which underscores the greatness and the glory of God's love. What truly manifests the greatness of His love is what really whom He gave. He gave His only begotten Son. And if you want to view this as the fourth thing that makes God's love so great, or if you want to view it as a, in a category set by itself, it does not matter. That's what the text emphasizes. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Which is to say, He gave His natural and eternal Son whom He loves. For that's the idea of this name here. The only begotten Son of God. It's teaching us this is the natural Son of our God. And we say the natural Son of our God in distinction to His adopted children. We are His adopted sons and daughters. But whereas God has many adopted children, He has only one natural child. His Son, Jesus Christ. The One to whom He gives existence out of His own being so that this Son is Himself God even as He is God. He's the natural Son. And what is more, He's the eternal Son of our God. That too is included in the idea of this name. Before Jesus Christ was ever born in Bethlehem, before He was ever laid in a manger, wrapped up in swaddling clothes, before the shepherds ever came to visit Him, He was begotten of the Father. And the truth of it is that in all eternity, the first person of the Trinity eternally begets the second person of the Trinity. And the second person of the Trinity is eternally begotten of the first. That's what it means that He's the only begotten Son of our God. But now we need to ask the question, why is this particular name used? You see, we have to do justice to the very specific language 
of this passage of Scripture. Because the text does not say that God so loved the world that He gave His angels or that He gave the whole world. That would have been far easier. But nor does the passage say God so loved the world that He gave Jesus. Or God so loved the world that He gave the Son of Man. But instead, very deliberately, the Spirit chose the words, only begotten Son. Why? To emphasize that there is no one more dear and more precious to the Father than His Son. That's what this name emphasizes. As the only begotten Son, this is the One whom the Father has loved from all eternity. That is, this Son is the object of His desire, of His delight who He longs to be with. This is the Son to whom He's been eternally bound. As Father is bound to Son within the Trinity. And this is the Son whom He seeks to accomplish His greatest good. That He would be exalted to His right hand. That He would reign over everything. This is the Son of His love. And yet He gave Him. And that's what shows God's love. That it was this only begotten Son that He gave. And that giving includes both His giving of His Son in the Incarnation as well as His giving of the Son at the cross. God gave His Son in sending Him in this world to be born of a woman, to take to Himself a true human nature, to assume our flesh and blood. And understand that was an act of love for our God to do that. Because in sending His Son into this world, He was not sending Him on a field trip. He was not sending His Son to a young people's convention. This was no vacation for His Son. But He was sending His Son into a sin-cursed world. He was sending His Son to a place where He'd be surrounded by sin which is repulsive to His very being as God. He was sending His Son to suffer. To be humiliated. To endure mockery and reproach. But He still gave Him. But not only did He give Him in the Incarnation, He gave Him More importantly, at the cross. For God delivered up His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. God has sent His Son to lay down His life upon an altar to endure His wrath and displeasure against our sins that His justice might be satisfied. That's love. And if we have any doubt about it, consider this love as parents. Which parent here would give one of your children 
to die for the sake of saving a friend. But now we need to go a step further. Because that doesn't capture it, does it? We need to ask the question, which one of us here would give our only child to die on behalf of another to save that person? Still not there yet, are we? Which parent here would give your only child to die a painful and accursed death in order to save a friend? But even that question does not capture it, does it? The closest we can get is to ask the question, which of you would give one of your children your only child, to die a bitter and shameful death to save an enemy. Someone who hates you. God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. Are you moved by this love? There are many things that get us excited. Many of us were stirred the other night by the beautiful music that was played here in this sanctuary. For others of us, it's a slam dunk in a basketball game. For still others, it's a, a beautiful piece of artwork. Whatever it may be, there are many things that we can get excited about. But do we still marvel at the depths of God's love for His people? Or have our hearts grown cold? Have we reached a point where we can read right over John 3.16 without being moved by the greatness, by the magnitude of this saving love? May God use this sermon to rekindle in us a sense of the wonder of it all. That God so loved us that He gave His only begotten Son. And even as we come to appreciate this, once again, may this knowledge also be what gets you through the week to come. God loves you, dear child. And as you face whatever it is that you're looking up against this week, let the thought of His love be what gets you through it. Let this be what you think about when you get out of bed in the morning. Let this be what you meditate upon throughout the day. God loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son to die for you. He will surely work all things for your good. That congregation is the greatness of God's love. 
But now we also need to consider tonight the object of God's love. Because that is indeed an important part of this passage. And the passage tells us the object of God's love when it says, for God so loved the world. The world. That's the object of God's love. But now as soon as we say that, we need to explain what is meant by the term world. And we begin with the negative. What this passage does not mean. This passage is not teaching that God loves the world in the sense of every single person who ever lived head for head, the world over. And that needs to be said because as we noted in the introduction, that is the prevalent interpretation of this passage. The way this passage is usually set forth and construed is that God loves all men head for head. And included in that is that God desires the salvation of all men head for head. Every single person who ever lived. Which means in turn that When God gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, God was giving Him to die for every single person that ever lived on this earth, thereby making salvation available for all if only by your own free will you will believe in Him. And if you choose Him by your free will, then you will have everlasting life. That, I say again, is the way this passage is misunderstood and misapplied by so many. And this is indeed the prevailing view, for this is the Arminian interpretation of this passage. And Arminianism is really the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation that is most prevalent at least in the modern day America that we live in. But now sadly, this is not only the Arminian view. This is also the view of some who at least go by the name Reformed, who rightly deny free will, who teach that faith is a gift, but yet inconsistently then go on to say, God loves every single person and He desires the salvation of all men, at least all those who hear the preaching of the Gospel. But that is an erroneous interpretation of this passage. It cannot mean what others say it means. And it cannot mean that for at least four reasons. First, this is not teaching God's love for every single person who ever lived. Because the term world does not necessarily refer to every single person who ever lived. In fact, rarely if ever refers to every single person who ever lived. And that becomes clear if we spend any amount of time studying the use of this term world as it's found on the pages of Scripture. Even if we look just in the book of John, what does John mean when he uses the term world here in this book? Well, at times he's talking simply about this physical creation. That's what we read in John 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that His hour was come that He should depart out of this world that is out of this physical earth. He's going to go back to heaven. The term world can also refer to the wicked world as it's going to be judged. That's John 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Similar use would be using the term world to refer to humanity minus the believer. That's how the term is used in John 15, verse 18. If the world world hate you, 
ye know that it hated me before it hated you. The term world does not necessarily mean we're talking about every single person who ever lived. And that comes out even in the context. Because in the very next verse, John 3, verse 17, the term world is used three times, none of which mean every single person. Notice that with me. John 3, verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world. It's talking about this physical creation. God sent not His Son into this world to condemn the world. There's our second use, and that can't refer to all men because verse 18 is going to tell us there are some who are in fact condemned, so it can't mean all men head for head there either. Verse 17, for God, so, for God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. But again, that cannot possibly refer to every single person because we know from the rest of sacred Scripture that not every single person is saved. And so when we're interacting with those who want to appeal to this text and say, and say see, it says it right there, God so loved the world, it has to mean all men, you say, no. That's not how the term is being used in this context. That term in no way necessitates that interpretation. But now there's more because in the second place, we reject that view because over against it, Scripture does teach us that God hates certain men. Psalm 11 verse 5 is blunt when it says, the Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. There's the classic example of Romans 9, verse 13. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And there are other examples that we could give showing that God does in fact hate certain individuals. And therefore, it cannot mean that He loves every single person who was ever born, who ever lived, because that would require God to simultaneously love and hate the same person at the same time. And that's impossible. Because that's a a contradiction. And such a contradiction goes against the unity of our God. He either loves or hates. Not both at the same time. That in the second place shows the prevalent understanding of this passage is an erroneous view. Third, what shows that is that the text itself limits God's love to elect believers. We're going to come in the third point of the sermon to the purpose of God's love. That's really the second half of this verse. And when we come to that, we're going to see that God's purpose is that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the key is, those words, whosoever believeth, is setting forth for us the object of God's love. It's limiting God's love to those who believe. And if we ask the question, who believes? Well, the rest of sacred Scripture gives us the answer. It's God's elect. It's those in whom He's worked faith. For example, in Acts 13, verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the Word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Not 
Those who believed were then ordained to eternal life. Other way around. Those whom God ordained. Those whom He chose in eternity. They're the ones who believe because He sovereignly works in them the gift of faith. So that on the basis of Scripture, we can say that God's love is limited to those who are His elect people. Those whom He gives the gift of faith. So this passage does not mean that God loves every single person who ever lived head for head because the term world doesn't demand that. Because Scripture teaches us God hates certain individuals. Because the text itself limits God's love to elect believers. And fourth, because that view would make God's love weak and worthless. It really limits God's love and makes God's love only the desire. But we saw at the outset of the sermon when we tried to define God's love, God's love is not just His desire, but when when God loves us, He binds us to Himself. And then He goes about accomplishing our greatest good. And this view that's so prevalent in the world around us really strips God's love of those second and third elements. It makes God's love only His desire. But such a love is is weak. It's worthless. And worthless is indeed the right term. In fact, it's probably not strong enough. Because think about it. If what the Arminian says is true, God can love someone. Christ can even die for that person. And yet that person can still perish everlastingly. Why would you ever want to worship a God whose love is that weak? That view makes God's love inept. That view robs God of His glory. And it's for those four reasons especially that we reject that interpretation. But then what does the passage mean? We explained the negative, what it does not mean, but now we still need to consider what is this passage of Scripture teaching us then? What's the positive explanation? Well, when Jesus Christ taught us that God so loved the world, He was teaching us that His elect people are found throughout the entire world and that His love embraces the created world itself. There's really two parts to that. First, Christ is teaching us that God's elect people are found throughout the entire world. And that comes out especially when we remind ourselves To whom is Jesus talking? He's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus the Pharisee, who not only would have been thoroughly convinced of the theology of self-righteousness, that salvation has its source in man, but Nicodemus had also been schooled in the thought and was entirely convinced that God's elect people were found only, or at least almost only, among the nation of Israel, among 
ethnic Jews. That's Nicodemus's viewpoint. And that means when Jesus says what He does in verse 15, that would have raised a red flag for Nicodemus. After talking about how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and how the Son of Man must also be lifted up, Jesus said in verse 15 that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. And when Nicodemus heard that, he would have thought, now wait a minute. Whosoever? Surely you mean whosoever in Israel, right Jesus? But before he has an opportunity to interrupt, Jesus immediately adds the words of the text in verse 16, for God so loved the world. Nicodemus, are you listening? God's love is not confined to the borders of Israel. But it's a love that extends to the whole world, Nicodemus. It goes beyond the borders of Palestine. God so loves the world, Nicodemus. That means He loves not only Jews, but also Gentiles. God loves Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Cappadocians, Asians, Egyptians, Cretes, and Arabians to draw from the list in Acts chapter 2. In our day, we would say God loves Mexicans and Filipinos and Russians and Ukrainians and Africans and Asians, and we could list nation after nation after nation. The point being that God's elect people are gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue. They're gathered from throughout the whole world. The term world here is pointing us to that very truth. That's the first part of the explanation. The other part of the explanation that God so loved the world is that included in God's love is this physical created earth. And we say that in light of the specific Greek term that's being used here. The Greek term being cosmos. From which we get our English word cosmic. God's love is a cosmic love because He sets His love on the cosmos. That is, upon the created universe. And now, if we only had this text to base that teaching off of, this would probably be going too far. But really, we're drawing from other passages of Scripture here. For example, Romans chapter 8, verse 22, that Romans 8, verse 22 teaches us that the whole creation is groaning, waiting for its deliverance from the bondage of sin. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 teaches us that Christ has reconciled all things unto Himself, whether they be things in heaven or things on this earth. And what all of this is teaching us is that God's grand cosmic plan includes not just the salvation of His people, but the salvation of His people who will dwell here on this creation after it's been recreated to form the new heavens and the new earth. No, that is to say that this physical creation will participate and enjoy life everlasting. For when Christ comes again, 
at the end of all things, a part of His work will be to burn up this world with fire. He's going to use a fervent heat to melt this world down to its elements, destroying all of the works of men. And then out of the ashes of that old creation, He will recreate it to form the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Scripture is talking about when it speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. The recreated heavens and earth. Where heaven and earth are now joined together as one. And all of that is included in this idea that God so loved the world. He loved the world that is, He loves it as a whole with His elect people being the very heart and center of it. That's the seed. That's the kernel. His elect people. But included in that is His love for this physical creation. And now to be sure, He's going to dispense with those parts of it that are not necessary. And that's where the wicked reprobate come in. They are like the the chaff around that kernel of wheat that in the end our God is going to discard. But He's not going to discard this physical creation that's included in His love. So that's the object of God's love. But now what then is the purpose of His love? The purpose of His love comes out in the second half of the verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that, and the idea is in order that, here's the purpose, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Stated negatively, His purpose is that those who believe will not perish. And what a word that is. Because as sinners, we do deserve to perish. To be destroyed. To be forever lost to the flames of an everlasting fire. That's perishing. And all of it is to say we deserve on account of our sin to go to the very real place called hell. And that will be the lot of all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son for this purpose. That we might be delivered from that. So that we might not perish because He perished on our behalf. He was lost on our behalf. He was destroyed on our behalf. He took the punishment we deserve. And in doing so, not only did He deliver us from being destroyed, from perishing, but from a positive point of view, the purpose in all this is that we might be given everlasting life. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but now here's the positive, that we should have everlasting life. And now here in the third point, we finally come to stating and explaining this greatest possible good that we've had in view the whole sermon. What is God's love? It's that He desires and seeks after us, binds us to Himself, and accomplishes our greatest good. What is that good? It's this. Everlasting life. And not just life that never ends, 
but it's a higher life. It's life with God. It's a life of fellowship and communion with Him. And because He so loved us that He sent His Son into the world to die for us, we are now given this life. And all this is the heart of the promise of the Gospel. That's what we have here in this passage of Scripture. The second half of John 3, verse 16 is setting forth the great promise of the Gospel. And that's how it's referred to in our confessions. For example, in the Canons of Dort, head to Article 5. This is found on page 64 in the back of this Psalter. Page 64, head to Article 5 of the Canons of Dort. Moreover, the promise of the Gospel is, so it's going to define the promise of the Gospel for us, that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's basically quoting John 3, verse 16. But now the key is, this promise of the Gospel is to be proclaimed broadly and promiscuously. And that's the, what the rest of Article 5 of Head 2 teaches us. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God, out of His good pleasure, sends the Gospel. And that addition in Article 5 is an important. Really, it's in harmony with the language of John 3.16. You see, we have to do justice to the language here. Even though we have explained it with regard to a right theology that God loves elect believers because He worked faith in their hearts, that's not what the text says, does it? The text does not say God so loved the elect that He gave His only begotten Son so that the elect might not perish but have everlasting life. The text does not say that. But instead, Christ put it in universal terms. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him. Whosoever congregation. It does not matter where you are from. It does not matter what your background is. Whosoever believeth. It does not matter what language you grew up speaking. It does not matter what color your skin is. It does not matter what economic class you belong to. Because the promise of the Gospel is that whosoever believeth shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And now, with that promise comes the call of the Gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. And that call is implied here in the context. Because if we back up two verses, we remind ourselves of verse 14 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Children, you remember the history. How God sent those fiery serpents, that is, those venomous, poisonous serpents 
to chasten His people Israel and how God told Moses to, to take a serpent, a brass serpent, a bronze serpent, and put it up on a rod. And it was only those who came to Moses and who fixed their eyes of faith upon that rod and that serpent being lifted up. It's only them who lived. And what that points us to is the calling to believe. And that calling applies still today. For Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And there He gave His life on our behalf. And the calling is to believe in Him. Believe that He is in fact the only begotten Son of our God. Believe that He is the Savior sent into the world to save us from our sins. Know Him. Trust Him. Embrace Him as your own. And for those who do believe, you have eternal life. Because God loves you. He has desired you. He has sought you out. He has bound you to Himself. And He has accomplished your greatest good. And the fact that you believe is the infallible evidence. It's the proof that God has set His love upon you. And knowing that He loves you, you may be absolutely certain that you not only will have, but right now, you have eternal life. He will not let you perish. What the Arminian says is a lie. It's never the case that God sets His love upon you and sends His Son to die for you. That He then allows you to perish. But having loved you, having sent His Son to die for you, He will hold on to you. He will preserve you. He will keep you until the day of Christ's return. You have eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, What can we say but to praise Thee for the greatness of Thy love? Blessed be Thy name, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be Thy name, the God who is love. And work in us by Thy Spirit to know what is the height, the depth, the length and the breadth of Thy love toward us as we look to our Savior Jesus Christ. 
as the manifestation of that love to us. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.